As you may have noticed, we're moving through uh, Mark chapter 2 a lot more quickly than we move through Mark chapter 1. Uh, slightly larger blocks of uh, events that take place in the midst of this. Uh, hear now the word of our God. And now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Father, here we have uh, Jesus explaining some important things to us, to them. Uh, words that sometimes can uh, stretch us a little bit in terms of how they apply to us. And so we ask that your spirit would be giving insight into the scriptures, helping us to understand not just what Jesus said, but also uh, how we are to live as a result of that. Um, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we have a missionary friend. Actually, we have lots of missionary friends. Uh, but one of them taught us a song before she became a missionary. And uh, it goes sort of like this. It's a very short song, so don't worry. Um, that was inappropriate. Very inappropriate. That was inappropriate. It was not okay. Hey. You've got to have the little hay in there sometimes, I think. Uh, appropriateness. And maybe some of you are thinking, that was not appropriate. And you, and you want to sing the song back to me at this uh, particular moment in time. And usually the context for her singing that song is if someone made uh, what would be a, a sort of off-color comment or, or a particularly hurtful comment. Uh, both of those would be considered inappropriate. And then she would burst out into the song uh, that would take place. And sometimes people would join her in the song. And as I was uh, doing my study for this text, uh, I almost heard the voice of Jesus sing this song because um, a lot of what he's saying is essentially is, that is inappropriate. That is an inappropriate response uh, to what I have done for you. Uh, that is an inappropriate response to the reality of uh, the fact that I have come. And so as we talk about fasting this morning, um, the, the point is not whether or not you fast, but really I'm going to talk about sort of the, um, the when, the why, uh, and the way you fast, and how um, the coming of Jesus has changed all of that. And that really seems to be what is inappropriate here. Uh, the, we're going to basically be answering this one question. Uh, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And uh, there, there's a 
in, in my version of the ESV, it says the people asked this. Uh, in, in the Greek, it's more vague than that. It's, it's they, and so I think really it's the disciples of the Pharisees. It's the Pharisees coming to Jesus and basically saying, why do John's disciples and the disciples of, the, of our disciples uh, fast, but your disciples don't? Which is, in a sense, an improvement. Uh, because in the past, we saw, in the case of the paralytic, they thought in their hearts, they dialogued, they argued in their hearts, but they didn't ask Jesus. And then, at the party that Levi threw, uh, they asked his disciples instead of asking Jesus. And so now, it seems that uh, perhaps they're actually asking Jesus himself. That is an improvement. But what we see is that this continues to escalate his conflict with the Pharisees. This is a question, uh, I want us to keep this in mind, this is a question of practice, not a question of faith. But we should recognize that orthodoxy or right faith will shape practice so that it is orthopraxy or right practice. If your theology is messed up, your practice is going to be messed up. And so Jesus, in a sense, is going to readjust the theology so that they begin to have a right practice of fasting. Because the implication is they currently have a wrong practice of fasting. We really don't know much about John's disciples, particularly as it pertains to fasting, except that they fasted. And they seem to do it on a regular basis in some sort of pattern, but we don't have that these days. We know that John was in a, what's called an ascetic. Okay, he, he believed in things like fasting. Uh, in fact, Jesus talks about how John came neither eating nor drinking, and you rejected him, and here I am eating and drinking, and you call me a drunkard. Okay, you people, aren't you ever happy? Uh, so, so John came with a, a lot of self denial, and what we see is that the the disciples of Jesus don't appear to be practicing self-denial before these people, these uh, Pharisees. But what about the Old Testament background of fasting? Uh, we're going to talk about when they were supposed to fast. And initially, they were supposed to fast, they were required to fast on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. We see that in Leviticus 16, verse 29. That was a day they were supposed to, uh, to afflict themselves or to fast in part in response to the fact that they were sinners seeking atonement or forgiveness from God for those sins. Then you kind of hit fast forward. But it goes way fast forward. It goes all the way to Zechariah chapter 8 after the return from the exile. And we see uh, there that there are four more days uh, or seasons of fasting throughout the year. So you've gone from one day to now possibly five days of fasting that were required by the people of Israel. And then we hit the fast forward another time, but this is only one of those 30-second jumps. It's not like really big fast jump. Um, and that's to Esther 9, which is also shortly after the return from exile, but still back in Persia. We have the institution of the fast of Purim in response to God's great deliverance uh, from his, for his people uh, from the hands of uh, Haman. So, six days. Six days you were required to fast. But what did the Pharisees teach? The Pharisees required the people, well, they took upon themselves uh, and all of their disciples, so to speak, to fast two days a week. 
Mondays and Thursdays, set apart for fast days. They were adding, in other words, to the Old Testament requirements for fasting. They're going beyond what God has said in their self-denial practices. The question essentially becomes, why is it that Jesus' disciples didn't have a regular practice of fasting weekly or twice weekly like the Pharisees and the disciples of John did? It's interesting how Jesus words his response to them. First, he brings them to a wedding, but he says, as long as they have the bridegroom, they cannot fast. Not will not fast, cannot fast. They don't have the power or ability. Is The dynamos is the word that's going on there. And so let's keep that in mind. But Jesus is saying it's inappropriate for them to be fasting now. It's inappropriate for them to fast because they should be feasting and they should be celebrating precisely because the bridegroom is here. We have a wedding coming up. I will be sorely disappointed if there is no wedding reception and food for Melissa's wedding. There will be something profoundly wrong with that. If all of us show up expecting to party because it's a reason to party and there's nothing there. It would seem inappropriate. If the Beals need help making sure there's a party, we can help them out. <laughs> okay? In Jewish culture, that was a one-week party because they recognized that as such an important thing to take place, a wedding. But it's not just that, that, that it should be feasting, but there must be feasting. And my mind goes back, unfortunately, to a wedding I went to years ago when I was still living in Florida, and I was still single at the time. And a bunch of us had uh, you know, gotten together in the church van, and we carted up to Tallahassee because one of our friends was getting married, but he was marrying some girl from Tallahassee. So the wedding was way up there in Tallahassee, and we all went up and uh, wandered around Tallahassee and all this stuff. And I remember... This is one of the worst weddings in my memory. Not because of the wedding, because of me. Because I was despondent. Because I was thinking about me. And kind of going, I may never have this day. There seems to be no legitimate or or, or reasonable possibility that I will have a day like this. And and instead of entering into the joy of my friend, which is what I should have been doing, that would be appropriate. I was lost in my own selfishness and and pride and fears, which was inappropriate. And so that's really kind of what Jesus is getting at. Uh, My disciples are excited rightfully so, because I'm present with them as a bridegroom is present with his men in preparation for this great day of feasting. They don't have to lament. They don't have to humble themselves precisely because they are currently in circumstances of incredible blessing that need to be accounted for. 
Now, Jesus doesn't say, my disciples will never fast. He says, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. But it was not yet. He was still present with them. Uh, This phrase, to be taken away, it could possibly be an allusion to what we find in Isaiah 53, I believe it's verse 8, and uh, the fact that the the son, uh, rather, sorry, the suffering servant was taken away, referring to his death. It could be referring to the realities of Jesus being removed or taken away in his ascension. But the point, either way, is the same. They fast because Jesus isn't present. He's not there with them. Now they have cause to fast. And so our fasting is not about the day of the week. It's not about the day of the year. But it really seems to be about Jesus and time. When we're particularly aware of the fact, times when we're particularly aware that Jesus is not physically present with his people. And therefore we struggle. But we see this pharisaical mindset returning to the early church very quickly. For instance, if we go to the Didache, which was about the year 100, give or take about five, or five to ten years. We're not sure exactly when it was written. But we see in chapter 8, verse 1, this interesting little passage. Let not your fasts be like the hypocrites. For they fast on Mondays and Thursdays. That's the days the Pharisees, right? But do you fast on Wednesdays and Fridays? See what they did there? They wrongly got the fact that it was like the wrong day. <laughs> so instead of Mondays and uh, Wednesdays, we're going to do... Uh, sorry, instead of Mondays and Thursdays, we're going to do Wednesdays and Fridays. And now it's all okay. That's not what Jesus is talking about. In any way, shape, or form. It's not simply about the day of the week. It really has to get back to Jesus and whether he's present. Now, you might think, well, that was the early church. But I'll tell you this. John Wesley wanted to bring the Didache back into practice, wanted to bring it back into prominence within uh, the church in England. And one of the things that John Wesley did to do that is to say that he would not ordain any man to ministry unless he fasted two days a week, and those two days were going to be Wednesdays and Fridays. Adding to the requirements of the Scriptures for ordination. We must always be aware of the tendency towards legalism, the pharisaical spirit. So the followers of Jesus fast at the right time, not a required time. Okay? So the right time being when you need to fast, <laughs> as opposed to when you're told to fast. Back to our question. 
Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? Instead of looking at the, the when, let's start to look at the why we fast. Back to Yom Kippur. The people humiliated themselves in, in seeking forgiveness for sin. We see, if we look at the Pharisees, that they seem to be fasting in a way similar to that which Isaiah warned about in Isaiah 58. Uh, They were fasting for their own pleasure, so to speak, so they could get their own way, so that God would notice them and give them favor because of their devotion to Him that is revealed through this religious act of fasting. They wanted to be heard. So they fasted, and they prayed regularly. This was a required ritual for them in order to gain God's approval and acceptance. Let's back off that for a moment. Let's see how Jesus replies with a second sort of illustration as to why this is inappropriate, very inappropriate, and it's not okay. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. So the analogy is that there is a hole in the garment. Now, yeah. Now, I came by these holes the old-fashioned way. I earned them. I did not buy these jeans with the holes as is fashionable today. And I'm reminded of the fact that when I was a child, uh, we off, our mothers often patched our jeans. Okay? Because, um, well, one... This is inappropriate (laughs) in most contexts, and therefore patches would go on our jeans. What I'm wearing right now are new jeans, jeans that I've bought not too in the, you know, that's why I'm wearing jeans today. It's okay. It would be highly inappropriate for me to cut up my new jeans so I can patch my old jeans. That's what Jesus is saying. Why would you take the new cloth, whether it's a garment or a new, uh, a new patch of linen, cut it up, okay? Take that valuable cloth, cut it up, and stick it on an old pair of jeans or an old garment. It makes no sense. And it would be inappropriate, very inappropriate. It would not be okay. You don't take the, old, the new and destroy it to patch the old. Jesus tells them why when he does this, a very practical way. He says, if he does, if that person does do this, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Implying the fact that the other cloth, the new cloth, has not shrunk enough yet. And so when you patch the whole... Uh, what's going to happen is the, when you wash it, that new patch is going to shrink and it's going to tear things. And you'll have worse. You'll destroy what you've, what you've put on there and you'll destroy what you put it on. So, Jesus is telling them about the, how inappropriate and foolish this is. You waste the new cloth because you use it the wrong way and you ruin the old that perhaps you could have mended with another older garment in worse shape that needed to be uh, repurposed, shall we say. Okay. So, 
As I think about this, this is not exactly where he's going, but this is how I'm going to sort of take it, is, is that because the Pharisees were using fasting to repair their lives, okay? Fasting connected, again, with Yom Kippur, and they're continuing to do this. Uh, they're, they're utilizing this in part to repair their lives, and it's similar to the, the Roman Catholic practice of penance, what is called the second plank of justification, uh, where they make up for their sins by things like prayers and fastings to restore themselves to a state of justification, okay? or being in a right relationship with God. Fasting should not be used to repair your life. It is inappropriate, as we see in Colossians, to rely upon rituals or religious works to repair our relationship with God. It is only Jesus and Him crucified that can repair life that's ruined by sin. We're called to faith in Christ so that we receive pardon, so that we receive acceptance. We are not intended to seek that pardon and acceptance by fasting. Don't try to repair your life like you've sinned big this week, so that means, boy, I better fast this weekend. That's not an appropriate way because it's taking you away from Jesus. It's taking your focus away from Christ. It's minimizing the effectiveness and value of His death upon the cross for sinners as the only thing that can make us right with God. It's a cheap substitute, and it's highly inappropriate. Fasting properly reminds us of our limitations and reminds us of our utter dependence upon this Jesus. And so we see Acts 9. Paul has been struck blind. And before he's baptized, he fasts and prays. But he's already met Jesus. And he's, just, he, and he's, in a sense, lamenting the sin that he has committed that required Jesus to find him. Unfortunately, the Didache in the previous chapter, 7, verse 4, uh, sort of makes that a requirement. And before the baptism, let the baptizer and him who is to be baptized fast and any others who are able. And thou shalt bid him who is to be baptized to fast one or two days beforehand. And so they say, they take the what happened to Paul and say, now it's a requirement. That, again, is the pharisaical sort of spirit at work. We see in Acts 13 uh, that Paul and Barnabas and some others were fasting and praying, seeking the Lord's will. And God appointed them to go on on the missions trail. We see in uh, verse 14 that they then, uh, sorry, chapter 14, that they subsequently continued to fast and pray uh, when they were commissioned, prepared, because they could not fulfill this mission on their own. They were 
expressing their utter dependence upon Jesus Christ for the success of the gospel mission. And so there will be times where you are going to be engaged in uh, mission trips or uh, you know that a a meeting is coming up with somebody that that is very important. You're going to talk about salvation and maybe you want to fast. If your fast is a reflection of your dependence upon Jesus. I can't convert this person. You must convert this person And I'm showing you that I'm depending upon you through this fasting. Fasting can also reveal the things that you rely on instead of Jesus. It can also uh, reveal the things that have a hold on you. I'm wearing my brand new RTS shirt this morning. Okay, There's a reason why I'm wearing it. It's because uh, I got it free at the RTS luncheon at General Assembly. And at that luncheon, they had a number of the professors speak. And one of those professors talked about how, uh, as part of his class, his students were required to fast from technology. No cell phone. No internet. Because he wanted them to begin to see how dependent they had become on their technology. How, in a sense, they couldn't function without the technology, but also how that technology, which was supposed to boost their efficiency, actually reduced their efficiency. Because they weren't actually doing their work most of the time. They were actually doing other stuff most of the time. Sometimes it's appropriate to take a break from the time sucks of life. So we can begin to see how much of a hold they have on us and how much of our, our life is wasted by them. And so fasting isn't just about food, brothers and sisters. Or that's not the only thing you can fast from. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about how you can fast from any legitimate thing. You can fast from alcohol. You can fast from TV, cell phones. Uh, You can fast from the radio. You know, some of us hide in music instead of running to Jesus. Okay? Now, if, if the music is taking you to Jesus, two thumbs up. But sometimes, I mean, when I was a teenager, I hid in music. That's what I did. So I have to always have to be careful of that. There were long periods of time in seminary where I had... Um, pulled the, the car radio out. Sometimes it was just broken, but you know, I was poor. Um, sometimes we just need a break from things so that it regains its proper place in life and it is removed from the uppermost place which belongs only to King Jesus. Okay? And so the disciples of Jesus fast as forgiven people, not as people Seeking forgiveness. That's the why. Okay. Let's return to our question, but let's begin to ask, um, instead of the, the why or the when, the, the way in which they fast. <clears throat> Fasting like the Pharisees fast 
uh, meant fasting as if the Son of God hadn't come and hadn't brought his kingdom with him. And that's really what Jesus is getting at with this parable of the new wine and the old wineskins. Now, I'll tell you that in Luke's version of this, he adds a sentence. And that sentence really kind of shifts everything. I'm not going to talk about Luke today. I'm going to focus on Mark, because Mark had a different point than Luke had. Okay, And so he didn't put that in Okay, because of that point. Right? So we're dealing with just Mark and what he says. Jesus says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. You're a dummy if you do. It's inappropriate to do that. He says, if he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. And the reason for this is that Wine ferments anywhere from 10 days to about a month, depending on how much sugar there is that needs to be converted, Okay, depending on kind of what you've put into it to help it ferment. And when it ferments, it produces, anybody? Yes, carbon dioxide. Yes, thank you. You get a lollipop. No, I'm just kidding about that. Okay? Carbon dioxide. I haven't seen any of the radical environmentalists say that we shouldn't have wine. (laughs) Maybe that's coming. I don't know. But nonetheless, it produces wine. And if you have uh, an old wineskin, it means that the wineskin has already been stretched. And if you put new wine in it and it continues to ferment, it's going to continue to stretch and burst the wineskin because there's not much elasticity left in it. It's already been pulled out. It's, in a sense, like an old garment. <laughs> okay? I can't expect to expand a whole lot in my waistline and this thing continue to fit me. Whereas new jeans, they have a little more play in them. But these have been stretched out. So, it's like that. Okay? The new wineskin stretches. So therefore you put new wine in a new wineskin. So fermentation happens, stretching happens, and guess what? You can drink your wine. But if you put it in an old wineskin, disaster happens. You lose your wine and you lose your wineskin. It's similar to the garment. Okay, That's one of the parallels that's there. Both are destroyed in both instances. Jesus reminds us the new wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus, the idea that he's getting at, I believe here, is that his coming brings about new kingdom and therefore new kingdom practices. What he's bringing will not fit in the old covenant practices. There has to be an adjustment that is made. Similar to what we see in Isaiah 58. They needed to leave behind their false fasting and pick up appropriate fasting. And essentially the same problem exists in Jesus' day and exists today. Jesus is not simply patching up problems with the Mosaic Covenant, but Jesus is fulfilling the promises and the types of the Mosaic Covenant. 
This is why Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, says that now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. That's not the important part I want to get at. The important part is who we are, on whom the ends of the ages has come. Not will come, has come. The coming of Jesus changed everything. And although not all of it has, uh, there's still a not yet component to it, we already have so much more and things are so different because Jesus has come. And so Jesus brings the blessings of the covenant of the kingdom both with him. And so we are not intended to seek the blessings of the kingdom through fasting, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so there are books that came out, particularly in the 90s and the early 2000s, along this topic of of, uh, fasting for spiritual breakthrough. I think those are very inappropriate because they're bringing us back to a time where we basically sought God's pleasure through or um, favor through fasting. You want spiritual breakthrough? If you're having a hard time, it's okay if you fast. But the important thing is is that it's a response of faith. Because ultimately, you are placing your faith in the person of Jesus, in the work of Jesus, in the promises of Jesus. That's fundamental. That's where, quote-unquote, spiritual breakthrough takes place. And not fasting, but fasting would be, uh, in a sense, a, a manifestation of faith. Zechariah, in chapter 8 there, anticipates the transformation of those fast days that he lists, those four fast days, uh, with the coming of Messiah and the kingdom. Because he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be, okay, future tense, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Catch that. The fasts will become feasts. The sorrow will become joy and gladness. The lamentation will be transformed to cheerfulness. Because Jesus has come. Because Jesus has died. Because Jesus has been resurrected. Because Jesus has ascended. And because Jesus pours out the power of the Holy Spirit upon his people. And so we fast in order to feast upon Jesus. To reveal that he is our joy, not this stuff that we We live for Jesus, not for food. We fast to reveal that He is our joy, that He is our delight, 
that He is our strength, that He is our confidence. And so our fasting takes on a completely different meaning than what it had for the Pharisees. Fasting is taking a break from whatever you might use that keeps you from resting in Jesus Christ. And as I've already mentioned, a bunch of those things. Those, are, those can be very good things. Try not eating for a year. It's probably not going to go well for you. Okay. But some of you have eliminated sugar from your diets. I probably need to do that. I love carbs. It's comfort food. And my comfort should be Jesus, not food. You know? Disciples of Jesus fast in order to feast on Jesus by faith. And so the coming of Jesus changes the why, the when, the why, and the way of fasting for his disciples. The coming of Jesus made the Pharisees' approach to fasting inappropriate. It changes the when of fasting. Instead of fasting on certain days, we fast because Jesus seems absent from our circumstances and we long for him. It changes the why of fasting. Instead of fasting to repair our life and relationship with Jesus, we fast because Jesus has repaired our life and our relationship with Him. We're turning away from the things that we relied on inappropriately to repair that relationship. It also changes the way of fasting. We abstain so that we feast on Jesus, knowing that all spiritual blessings come from Him and Him alone. It is faith manifested, not the flesh seeking to gain them by its religious works. So do you fast? As a Christian, you should. Jesus didn't say, if my disciples fast, but when they fast, in the uh, Matthew 6 passage that, that Mark was supposed to read. But by my fault, I'm assuming, didn't. <laughs> okay? As a Christian, you should. But we must be careful as to the when, the why, and the way so that our fasting does not mimic that of the Pharisees, but reflects your faith in Jesus because you're his disciple. Fast as a forgiven person, feasting on him by faith alone. Let's pray. Father, uh, not a pleasant topic. Probably very few of us like to fast. And yet we're called to. But help us to fast for the right reasons, for the right way, the right times. When you're calling us to fast, when you're calling us to lament and to let go of things because we need to hold more tightly to Jesus. Give your people wisdom. These people, wisdom. 
so that we as disciples of Jesus are finding ourselves fasting by faith. Father, set us free from any sort of pharisaical notion of fasting because we recognize that that legalistic spirit runs deep within our bones. So protect us and, and, and help us to protect each other as well. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.